Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe it? Season four of Chewing the Gristle, the greatest podcast that ever was. Well, that might be bold, but I like it. What is Chewing the Gristle? Well, doggone it, we've got a whole bunch of internationally renowned musical guests, mostly guitar players, I believe. <laughs> Not that other people who play other instruments aren't musicians as well. But we're a little biased towards the six-stringed variety around here. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, where, of course, I've been doing videos for over 10 years. They have so many guitars that'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. You better be careful. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, bringing you state-of-the-art accoutrements for amplifying your acoustic instruments to sound the best they possibly can. Doggone it. And let's face it, their fluence guitar pickups, especially those with the Gristletone moniker, are ass kicking. Let's get to it. Season four, Chewing the Gristle, we ride. This week, ladies and gentlemen, on Chewing the Gristle, the long-anticipated chat with my buddy Jimmy Herring, an astonishing axeman of the highest order. Of course, he's currently with Widespread Panic. I saw him in the Allman Brothers, Jazz is Dead, The Grateful Dead. He's got his own records. What a cool cat. This week, ladies and gentlemen, Jimmy Herring. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, here we are once again, <laughs> chewing the gristle, this time with my buddy, the immortal Jimmy Herring, guitar player extraordinaire, cool cat. We just wrestled the shit out of some technology to make this happen, but we've we've got it going on. Jimmy, how you doing? I'm, I'm better now. I can see you. I can see you, man. <laughs> <laughs> how you doing? You know what? I cannot complain. I cannot complain. But let you know, last time I saw you, you were in town playing with the mighty widespread panic. But I, I always like to recall the first time I heard of your mighty powers was through our mutual friend T. Lavitz. He was in town here doing a session on my on my first ever CD, as the case may be, back in like nineteen. 92 or something like that maybe 91 i can't remember but uh -huh. he's like have you ever heard of jimmy herring i was like do tell well it's, uh, he's in this band called colonel bruce hampton in the aquarium rescue unit <laughs> and i remember hearing uh, i think i heard mirrors of embarrassment first and i just was like what the hell's going on here because to me you encapsulated so many of the things that i um just loved in terms of you know, there's there was the element of the Steve Morse thing, but it was still your own thing. But but the outside playing kind of reminded me a little of of Scott Henderson, just in terms of how I was trying to compare things. Not that I, not that I'm attaching those things to you, which is what it reminded me of. But it, it but it was just so awesome to hear a an amalgam that still respected the nuances of the bluesy rock shit, but also had the cerebral nature of all this more kind of. Uh, sophisticated playing and i thought who is this savage beast and then, I, <laughs> and then i got to know you and it was just like this is this is unbelievable and it's just uh it's been a pleasure to you know get together every now and again over the years and and bask in your magical powers man you you're the man i, I can't even hear that coming from you you scare everybody half to death every time you pick up the instrument <laughs> and it, every time i come to uh, milwaukee the first thing i'm thinking is I'm calling Greg. We're going to get coffee. <laughs> <laughs>
and then I want to pick your brain and watch you play Chet Atkins uh, on, on uh, you know, like on 78, you know. Like, <laughs> like, on coffee. Yeah, man. <laughs> that coffee will do it every time. <laughs> but, well, man. Look, you know, I've never, really, I've never really talked to you about, you know, when you started off as a youngin, and uh, how, how did you get, you know, because I know you love the dregs. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, when most people, was it simultaneously when you were listening to, you know, the stuff most of us listen to as far as, you know, Zeppelin and H- Hendrix and all that kind of stuff. And then, but the dregs is like, that's a huge jump in ear training from, from the previous mentioned stuff. Yeah. And I'm just you- wondering how, how did that happen? You could study that for the rest of your life, you know, and still never, you know, you know what I mean? It's just, right. well, my brothers, man, I had two older brothers. They were, uh, one was four years older and the other was seven years older. So there were, they, they were all into the music of the seventies when I was a little kid. I mean, I can remember hearing Fillmore East playing in the house when I was eight years old and that I mean, of course, you know, the posters they had on their walls, the Jimi Hendrix posters, you know, the Almond Brothers, Santana, um, you know, not to mention just a million other great uh, things. And I guess th- they were a huge influence on me. And then their music was, was you know, a, they, were, they were ahead of me by several years. And then my friends were listening to Aerosmith, you know, and stuff like that. And I was into that, too. But so I started by by trying to pick out, you know, like the chord progressions in Aerosmith songs and stuff. And, um, uh, you know, but then after a period of time, I, I just I mean, I had all this music in my head from listening to my brother's records. But, man, I couldn't find anybody to sing. And it was really, you know, I mean, every, every, every one of us probably remember that, that, that grew up in our era. I'm 60, you're, you're less, you're younger. But I mean, I, I'm just, uh, you know, like it, there was nobody who could sing. And, and we, it was frustrating. We'd learn the tunes and I'd go to my brothers and be like, can't find a singer. It's so frustrating. And they started telling me about instrumental music. And um, the first thing they played was Intermounting Flame. Okay. And then, of course, that was McLaughlin, and that that was that was a, an immediate life changer. But it was still exotic, and and uh, and it was so far away from my roots of you know, like being from the South and everything. But I still listen to it all the time. But I never tried to play any of it. You know, I just listened to it, and it got to the point where I I, I just thought I might give up. You know, I might give up. And then my brother c- continued turning me on to instrumental music. When he played the dregs for me, it was like a it was like a pool cue hit me right between the eyes. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I mean, and uh, I was just stunned. And I couldn't play that music either, obviously. And I, I didn't even try. But those were my two bands. And then I got into Return to Forever. And, and basically all the Miles Davis spinoffs, you know, Weather Report. Uh, you know, Return Forever, Mahavishnu, and then I found the Dregs. You know, my brother introduced me to them, and uh, man, I was—I uh, just listened to that music, and I couldn't play it. Didn't even try for probably a number of years. But that's—but then, see, the Dregs were always on the road, and they came through North Carolina all the time. So I think I was seventeen, too young to get into a bar, 
and they wouldn't let me in, but I stood outside and listened, you know? <laughs> you know? So whenever they come around, and then when I turned 18, I, I was able to go inside the bar and listen to them play. And they, they, they toured all the time, and that's how. And so I never got to see Ma Vishnu. Uh, I never got to see Weather Report, and I never got to see Return to Forever. Until many years later, they did a reunion tour. But the Dregs were actively touring, and this is around 1979. You know, 78, 79, and 80, all the way to 82 uh, when they when they stopped touring. But anyway, yeah, so that's 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 how it happened. And uh, it was like a freaking, you know, getting hit between the eyes with something. You know, it was like, wake up. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. You know, this is, and, and my mom had always been, my mom and dad are very academic minded people, and education was incredibly important to both of them. And, uh, they were both well-educated, smart people, and they said, "Look, we're—if you want to be a musician, okay, that's that's fine. It's an honorable thing, but you, you need to you need to learn your craft. You need to learn your trade." And I'm thinking, "Oh man, now what are you talking about? I'm from the street, I, you know, <laughs> right, right, right." <laughs> Which is, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> but but I was 17, you know. And the, the music I was into before that wasn't the kind of music you would imagine needed any kind of scholastic approach. And, you know, but, but then when I started getting into the other music and realizing that people like but that I was really into, they studied music. I'm not talking about studying guitar per se, but they studied music. They, they, they understood composition and they understood, uh, you know, what kind of scales fit, what kind of chords and, they understood chord harmony and rhythms and, you know, and I wanted to learn about that. And then, uh, so I ended up going and studying, you know. So you did go to GIT, but with, were you yeah. studying with other people prior to that, that hipped you uh, to, okay. Well, no, but I did go to Berkeley for a summer session when I was. Oh, you did. Okay. That was 1980. And I, I graduated from high school. And uh, my buddy, a drummer that I played with, um, he was so good. And he was good before he left. But he went up to Berkeley for a summer, and he came back, and it was like he was an, a different musician. I mean, he was even better. He was, he was so good. And he and I were like the only two guys or, you know, that would, well, and that's not true. There was three or four of us that were really into uh, all this progressive music. And when he came back, he brought new stuff that I'd never heard before. He brought the Brecker brothers and I heard Michael Brecker, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, Michael Brecker, holy crap, you know. Right. And, um, you know, so I, I, I heard a lot of new things to my ears that he brought, uh, you know, that my brothers didn't even know about. And so and, did your brothers play at all or no? They just were fans of music? Well, well, the oldest brother didn't play, but he was super intellectual listener you know like he had a, a massive record collection and uh and he was really diverse as a listener he loved everything from coltrane to frank zappa to almond brothers to all the classic rock of the time it just seemed like back then everything was good right you know what i mean it's like if it got on vinyl and it got to your stereo and, or you heard it on the radio, it had to be pretty damn good at that time. And there were standards, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, well, I, was, it, it, I was enamored, you know. And so after you went to the Berkeley session, came back home, did you, did you go to GIT like right after high school? 
No, I waited another two years. It was I, I came back from Boston. You know, the question was, did I want to go to Berkeley? That's what the whole summer session uh, thing was all about. You know, like you go there to be evaluated and see if, if you're uh, able to get accepted into the school. Great school, obviously. But, you know, me being from where I was from and the things I was interested in, it just didn't seem like the place for me at that time in my life. Now I kind of look back on it and wish I had gone ahead and gone through the, the whole program. Was it more of a traditional jazz approach at that time? Is that kind of what turned you off? or I don't want to say it turned me off. It's just that I didn't feel like I was up to the... the I got accepted into the school, but the stuff I wanted to do was still solid body guitars and loud amps and stuff. And And at the time, like you said, like now Berkeley ended up uh, changing later, but at that time in 1980, it did seem like it was it was mostly a uh, you know like traditional jazz approach, which I absolutely love. But I also know myself, and I know I just don't. I don't. I don't know if I even possess what it takes to be a real jazz guitar player. You know, I I just I just don't know if I have the the the, the have it that in me. You know, try to be honest with myself and. You know, and I, I didn't know that what I really loved was, I mean, rock and roll, you know, so, rock and roll gives me a chance to breathe and not have to be like, so, you know, it's not, it's not so demanding the whole time you get a chance to, you know, like it's, it was natural to me. That part was natural to me, but the stuff I was drawn to listening wise, it, it made me have to sit and practice a lot. You know, it's interesting. You should mention the, uh, you know, what was always fascinating to me about about jazz per se is that I I didn't really end up listening to a bunch of jazz when I was a kid. There were jazz ish things that I liked, you know, George Benson and oh and, 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 and yeah. Grant Green and, and and stuff like that. Um, but when it came to like the standards that you everyone kind of had to learn, it's like let's learn Autumn Leaves and let's learn all the things you are and Satin Doll. It's like. I don't give a shit about these songs. I mean, at the time, I just, I just didn't. I wanted a backbeat, and I was more into the tone and vibrato and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. Then, and then on top of that, you get this kind of, you know, not exactly endearing attitude from, you know, some of the jazz educators at the time who were very, who, who construed rock and roll as anything from like ABBA to Frank Zappa. To them, it was all the same shit. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. loud rock and roll shit, they would say, right? And, and so, but in my mind, I was like, well, at some point there's a light switch that'll go on and you just instinctively know how to play over changes. That that's what I thought. And then I, I came to realize, I was like, no, you still gotta, you gotta know the songs and you gotta know the melodies. You gotta learn the tunes. You gotta learn the book. You know, you can't, you know, cause it was so many times it's, you know, it's a bunch of people reading out of the real book and going, okay, here comes the minor seven flat five chord. I'm yeah, going yeah. To- <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's an interesting thing because I, I think there's just a, you know, it's, it's not necessarily um, an inability to do that. It's just a matter of the discipline to learn that language. And I, and I, and even though it isn't the greatest analogy, I kind of construe it as this, like, it's like learning Latin. It's like, yeah, if you learn Latin, you can, you know, communicate in scholarly ways and so on and so forth. But that shit's over the head of 99% of the people on the planet. And I'm not saying that all jazz is over the heads of people. Certainly it's, 
Right. It's, it's a more, it's more accessible than that. So that analogy isn't the best, but I just, you know, I just thought to myself, what would I rather listen to? Um, let's say Allman Brothers live at the Fillmore or, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I pick a, a particularly, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of jazz stuff I actually love listening to, but I gotta be honest. There's a long time where I couldn't listen or want to play anything with a major seventh chord because it just it, it just pissed me off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like Misty or something. Right, exactly. And, and well, you know, I, I, I can relate to everything you just said. I feel exactly the same way in a lot of ways. And um, and major seven chords, I mean, see there, you know, it, 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 they do have a, a vanilla kind of quality to them that goes against the grain of, of rock and roll. But at the same time, then you then you find you know uh, you find ways to implement them where you might not play a stock voicing or or you might just play a one five seven and leave the third out or you might just play a triad and then imply the seventh with your with your lead playing you know thing and, and and uh you know things like that that you discover later on but I know exactly what you mean and like you know and where I grew up it just seemed like. If you wanted to play instrumental music, uh, man, you were immediately, immediately uh, uh, thought of as a jazz musician. People where I grew up called instrumental music jazz, even if it was freaking power trio bombast. You know what I mean? They would still call it jazz if it didn't have a singer. And that was frustrating to me, too. Uh, you know, and I mean, I mean, like when you think about the dregs, like they're not a jazz group at all. They're they're more. I mean, yes, they draw from jazz. Jazz is an element in their in their in their stew, you know. But but really, more than anything, this is the way I think about it. Anyway, like when you listen to Ma Vishnu, you know, you you're hearing like incredible like Indian rhythms, you know, blended with jazz harmony, you know, or what we think of as jazz harmony because they're. You know, it's more than just one, three, five. You've got sevens, nines, thirteens, elevens, you know. And John is obviously a brilliant composer, and he figured out a way to unite Indian rhythms with with jazz harmony. Okay, so you can hear that that that, that type of fusion is coming from those two places and, and other stuff too. Obviously, rock and roll is in there too. Uh, you know, but then when you hear the drags, it's more like if 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 you blended, you know, uh, I don't know Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, or you know, like Led Zeppelin with Bach or Mozart, right? You know, right, right. It's, it's coming more from a classical place than it is from a jazz place, and I couldn't understand why people couldn't hear that. I, I just was, I'm like, wait a minute, how can you compare? You know, because you know, you'd ultimately you go see these shows, right? And then you're you go in the bathroom and you're in there to take a leak and wash your hands, and you hear these guys comparing, you know, oh, they're good, they always want to compare guitar players, you know. I mean, I remember seeing uh Alan Holdsworth, uh, his his road games tour, you know, one of my absolute favorite, I'm one of the greatest modern improviser, I think, of all time. Uh, on any instrument. I, I think he's got to be in there when you talk about the greatest modern improvisers. He's got to be in that, in, on that list. I agree. And that, that includes Coltrane, you know, um, with, I mean, you know, in, on any instrument, but, but he's coming from a, a way more harmonically adventurous uh, 
place than say the drags, you know, or Steve's solo stuff. And people would be in there comparing Alan Holdsworth to Steve Morris. And I'm like, wow, you know, and I just, I never got involved in the conversation because it would, it would have been like trying to discuss politics with people. It's like, okay, uh, well, you can make your points, but then it's going to get, you know, they're getting an argument about it. And and it's so so ridiculous. Anyway, to me, it's like uh, apples and oranges, you know, but I like both apples and oranges. And so I was drawn, I was drawn to both of them. You know, but but in my mind, I thought of how different they were by looking at it like, well, I love Coltrane, I love Charlie Parker, but I also love, you know, Mozart, you know, or or Beethoven or Bach. You know what I mean? To me, all of it's. I mean, I love hearing how Steve blended classical music with rock and roll. I just think it's so unique. Sure, other people have done it, but not like the way that he did it. You know, no, I mean, you you. You know, I know you just had that opportunity to play with Steve and yeah, and and and, uh, and how he sent you the parts because T used to say that that's what he would do when they were learning the songs. It's like he would send them tapes of here's your part, yeah. And if, and if you had to try to pick it off the record, I mean, it's like it's it's difficult. And it's difficult it, because of the mix and the, the. I mean, you can't. I mean, sure, you can hear melodies, and some of them are so fast. It's really right. Exactly. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. And there's two people playing the melody most of the time, whether it be a, a keyboard and, and, and a guitar or, or a keyboard and a violin or a violin and guitar. That's the other thing that's very classical in Steve's compositions and his arrangements is that he's uh, he's very he thinks like a symphonic composer, you know, right, uh, right. Or conductor like he he's an arranging master. And and he did all this before he was thirty years old. I mean, yeah. it's it's just, you know. I mean, I mean, he he continues to be brilliant, of course. But I mean, when somebody's that brilliant when they're twenty four, twenty five years old, I mean, you know, his vision was complete before he turned. He wasn't even twenty five yet. He already had a complete vision of of what he wanted to do as a composer. But yeah, you know, yeah, I did get that 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 opportunity and 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 he did do it like T said. You know, he 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 sent me snippets of of the song. Right. The, the actual song that they invited me to play. Well, one was the song I'd played with him before that was maybe the easiest dregs tune in the catalog, Refried Funky Chicken. And then and and all dregs tunes have something. They have something in there that's very difficult physically to play. Um, you know, it just it's even the simplest ones have something that's like, oh shit, here comes bar sixty four. Oh no, you know? right? Exactly. I, I, I practiced it a thousand times, but can I actually do it? I don't know. But this song called the Hereafter is uh, is very. It's a very beautiful classical type piece, and uh, <clears throat> you know. Um, I never, I always, it was always one of my top five favorite tricks tunes, but I, I never ever imagined trying to play it. I mean, I was influenced by it and I even wrote things that I lifted from learning and uh, being around his music for all those years. But, uh, but to try to play that piece, oh my God, I didn't think it was possible. And, uh, and it really wasn't possible without his sending me snippets with him playing guitar by himself where I could actually hear what he was doing. <clears throat> you know, I just that's I just remember that solo of his at the end of that, that oh, tune. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That 
That's awesome. That was my favorite part. <laughs> I know. I think I think a lot of us it was it was our favorite part. But the actual the actual song, when you listen to it, you know, you hear the bass line and you hear these beautiful violin melodies and and then you think, okay. Well, I can learn that violin melody. Da, 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 da. Okay, I can do that. But wait a minute. He's doing the bass part too. Oh, well, wait a minute. He's got parts in the middle that are moving in contrary motion. At the same time, he's playing the bass line and the melody. for. The... And see, that's, that's what makes him who he is. And like, like, you know, that that's... You know, Steve could go play Dreg's music. He could do a whole concert of Dreg's music with, by himself. And you know how a great singer-songwriter sits down like a John Lennon? He'll sit down and play a song, and it's all there. Right, yeah, yeah. Even, even if, like, I got on this thing recently where I I wanted to hear the piano part of Sexy Sadie, the, the great Beatles song off of White Album. I was thinking of someday covering that song, but instrumentally, you know? And I wanted to know. I wanted to know more about that piano part, and so I was trying to find the piano part isolated. And it took me to some site where you could listen to almost any Beatles song, and you could hear the piano isolated from the rest of the track, and you could hear the guitar isolated. You could hear the vocal isolated, and I was in my chair for like six hours without <laughs> just listening to different Beatles songs. But my point is, is like. When you listen to a great song by a great uh, composer, writer, you know, singer, songwriter, you know, they play the song by themselves, even without the drums, even without the bass, even without the other stuff, the song is still there. And, and Dreg's music has that. Like, if you were to hear Steve sit down and play that song, The Hereafter, um, by himself, everything is still there. Like all these incredible parts, they're all there, but he's playing them all at the same time. And like, that's a classical thing. We all know that, you know, and uh, that, that, that's truly amazing. It's, it's sort of his version of chord melody, you know, not jazz, not jazz wise, but, but he's, he's really developed his own, his own thing that makes him completely unique. And I'm drawn to that. I'm definitely drawn to that, you know? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. But I had to practice it like, I don't know. Every day, I would, I mean, and see, this was all for a, uh, this was all for a, a memorial for a dear friend that had passed away. And and he used to work for the dregs. And I, I had met him at dreg shows when I was a kid, you know, and he was a, he was a roadie for them. And he took, I mean, man, he took time out of his day to treat us kids like real people. You know, this dude was one of the coolest, most wonderful people I've ever met. And, um, when he passed, that's when, you know, we got the, I got the phone call about playing with the dregs at, the, at his memorial. And so it was very bittersweet and very touching. And, um, but it got canceled maybe three different times. It not canceled, postponed because of the, because of the pandemic. Uh, and all I can say is, is that, 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 those uh you know those postponements allowed me to practice it more ah so lucky for me the pandemic actually helped me out in that regard because because if i would have had to go try to play that song like at the the first time that the 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 um, memorial was supposed to happen i would have been in trouble 
but I, I kept practicing it and I didn't know if it would, if they would ever have the memorial, but it was just one of those things where, you know, the piece of music was so stunningly beautiful. It's still something I practice every day. I mean, it's just a, just a good thing to have to, you know, keep trying to perfect it. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and, and the hereafter was actually written about twigs, right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> who was and, Scoot's, uh, who was Scoot's older brother, correct? That's correct. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that song, I mean, man, that came out on Dregs of the Earth. What year was that? Was that 19, 1980? Yeah, I think so. That's that I think that's my favorite. I mean, not that there has to be a favorite, but I, if, if I had to pick a favorite, that would be the one as far as the Dregs library is concerned. Yeah, that's definitely one of the great. That's the, um, I think that's the fourth album. I mean, you got Free Fall and then you got Night of the Living Dregs, What If. What If, yep. And then, yeah, Dregs of the Earth. And I mean, like those, those were the early Dregs albums that, you know, I mean, man, it's, yeah, it's, I think that the, that album was the first one Steve produced. Got it. Because the other three were produced by Ken Scott uh, of, you know, the, the Ken Scott, you know, the famous producer, the famous engineer that worked with the Beatles. And then later, of course, he, he did many other big, big things. But I don't know if he did all three of those albums, but he did at least two of them, you know. And then Steve took over production on the fourth album. And, you know, I mean, man, his vision is, uh, yeah, he sees the whole thing, man, you know. Yeah. It's pretty well, deep. let's talk a little bit about when, you know, I would say, if you would probably agree with this, your your f- big formative thing in your career was playing with Colonel Bruce as far as... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of putting everything together and then just everything branched out from there. So how did that all transpire? How did you hook up with O'Teal and, <laughs> and Jeff Sipe and Matt Mundy and the gang? Okay, well, I came to Atlanta in 86. And I came here not knowing, you know, thinking, I don't know how long I'll be here. Um, I, I, the, the city might chew, chew me up and spit me out. But I met Jeff Sipe real early on. I, I saw him play. In fact, Scott Henderson had come to town to do a, 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 a clinic or a seminar. And uh, I was friends with uh, this guy who was starting the school called Atlanta Institute of Music. His name is uh, Steve Freeman. Steve tells me Scott's coming. And I'm like, well, hell, I have to go see Scott. I mean, you know, but Scott didn't bring anybody with him. He just played with some local guys that Steve found to get to play with Scott. And man, the guys they got were so good. I mean, they were so good. And one of them was Jeff Sype. And Jeff Sype literally just took my head off. I mean, he was so great, man. I mean, every and his playfulness and his sense of humor was all in his music, you know. And I was just blown away by him. And so I approached him after the the performance and just said, "Man, I, I, my name's Jimmy. I'm new in town. I just got here two days ago." I said, "Man, you are amazing. What a great performance! And I would love to play with you sometime." And Jeff is like, "Oh, what are you doing tomorrow?" <laughs> excuse me i've been fighting this cold that's all right but anyway he goes yeah what are you doing tomorrow and i'm like what a guy you know he doesn't even know if i can tune a guitar or not you know and so but he invited me to come over to his house and so i went over to his house and we played for four hours just the two of us and it, it, it was it was very uh 
I knew then that he was the guy that like, I don't care who, who else I play with in my lifetime. This guy is the guy I want to be around. This guy's the guy who can make you a better musician. You know what I mean? And his devotion to music. I mean, after we played for four hours, we probably spent two hours listening to music, you know, with him turning me on to things I've never heard, you know? And, uh, cause see, he was way ahead of me. Like his, his listening had gone way beyond what I was into at the time. Uh, he was, he was, you know, he was championing all these people that nobody knows, except, you know, like that were so amazing, you know? And, um, so he turns me on to a lot of stuff and I'm like, I got to be around this dude, man. This dude is going to, he's a good influence. And maybe a week or two later, he calls me up and goes, Hey man, you got to get over here right now. These two dudes just moved that they're renting a room. And, you know, like Jeff was, Jeff had roommates in his house. Like he, he didn't own the house, but they would rent it. And then, you know, he'd have different roommates, you know, from time to time. Well, these two new roommates he got, were these dudes from Virginia Beach, Kofi Burbridge and O'Teal Burbridge. Uh-huh. And he's like, man, you got to get over here. These fucking guys are incredible. And so I rushed over there and I met Kofi and O'Teal and we started playing and there was this chemistry. And and it, it was instantaneous. And Charlie Williams, a guitar player from Atlanta, he was also involved. And, uh, and then... Like after we 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 never played a show together because we were trying to do original music, and it took a, a while to get enough material to go out and play your own show. Uh, anyway, so eventually Jeff starts playing with this guy that he kept talking about. He's like, "This man, you guys got to hear this guy. It's just, just so liberating. It's so freeing. It's like I've never felt so free." And it was Bruce he was talking about. Now none of us knew him. And, you know, so Jeff goes and he starts playing with Bruce and he starts losing interest in anything else. He had lost interest in playing any other music. He just wanted to play with this guy. And uh, and then he gets O'Teal and O'Teal goes and starts playing with them. So then Jeff and O'Teal both. And then Charlie Williams started going to play with them. And then eventually they called me up and said, man, you got to come hear this, you know. And so I went down to hear them and was absolutely just, you know, stunned. I was stunned. You know, it was like a musical revelation or something. It was like, and I didn't play. All I did was listen. And I was just knocked out. A lot of it was performance art, but it was like, it was humorous, but it also had just virtuosity was in the music. Even though, even though it was all improvised, there was literally nothing planned out, nothing. And, um, that's how I started, you know, hearing them. And then eventually Bruce is like, who's that redhead goon over there? You know, why don't you invite him to sit in? So they asked me and I couldn't wait to sit in with them. And when I did, it just exploded. And it was like, a, I mean, that first time we played together might've been one of the best times we ever played together because it was all so new and it was all so like, they didn't know that I like playing blues, you know, or country leaning things or, you know, or folk songs or whatever. And, and I didn't know that they weren't going to be bored to death playing on one chord all night long. 
uh, they didn't know that I was into something like that. I mean, because the stuff we had done in the past had been trying to write our own music, which was, you know, much more in a fusion type of vein. So the music was more complicated when we were trying to write our own music. But to get to play this freeing, you know, open, uh, simple music, you know, that allows you a lot more space to try new things. And that was what the whole thing was based on, you know. So, <clears throat> yeah. And then one night, one night we're, we're playing at the Five Points Pub, and there was this guy out in the audience, uh, Jeff Mosier, the great banjo player here in Atlanta. He was a part of the band, too. We were just playing one night a week, you know what I mean? What, it was Monday night, and there was no money involved. It wasn't about money. It was, it was about a chance to, 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 to get to stretch, you know, and, and, and try things that you were afraid to try in any other gig that might get you fired, you know? <laughs> so this guy, Jeff Mosier, had a buddy named Matt Mundy. And uh, Matt Mundy came up to sit in with us, and he literally tore the roof off of that place. And we all knew immediately he's got to join the band. We've got to get this guy to join the band. Well, and that was only my second night sitting in. And so Bruce asked, he asked Matt and I both, do you want to join the band? And we both said yes. And then the group wasn't really touring. And there was two guitar players, mandolin, banjo, guitar, bass, you know, or bass and drums, you know. <clears throat> but once the group started touring, Bruce wanted to cull it down to a core unit and it ended up just being, you know, Matt on mandolin and then me and then uh, O'Teal on bass and Jeff Sype on drums. And we had a great percussionist called Count Mbutu. Aha. That wasn't his real name, Bruce. <laughs> Bruce Kidd. <laughs> you can edit out my, my, um, my, my coughs. But anyway, Bruce gave him that nickname, Count Mbutu. So you so you had no idea prior to this that that Colonel Bruce was kind of he was kind of like the Captain Beefheart of the South, was he not? I mean, he goes he knew like the the like Dwayne Allman and all, he he went back that far with oh, yeah. the music he, scene, right? Absolutely, he had a band called the Hampton Grease Band, and he was buddies with Dwayne Allman. He knew the Allman Brothers; they played together. You know, uh, the Grease Band. It has a unique history, you know, like in 1968 or nine or something like that, they got signed and uh, ended up having the second worst selling record in Columbia records history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but man, if you listen to that record, it's called music to eat. It's full of adventurous, like insanely, you know, well, put up music you know it's like when i say put up that's one of his terms it means it's it's thought out music it's not all improvisation like what we were trying to do with bruce you know i mean eventually you know we did have some songs but most most of what we did with him was just purely improvisation we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at fishman transducers Makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristletone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado. Bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So, so at what point did you guys do, you know, the whole Capricorn Records thing and, and do the mirror? Well, the live album was first, right? Yeah, and that was all due to panic, you know. Well, see, Bruce, Bruce knew... 
Phil Walden. He knew him pretty well from back in the day. And, uh, and they were buddies, you know, they knew each other. Um, but then Capricorn went away for a while. And when they resurrected, it was like in the late eighties, early nineties, one of the first bands they signed was this group widespread panic. And, um, and we had become friends with widespread panic. They, they invited us to open some shows for them in the, in the area, in the Atlanta area. Anyway, when they got signed, they, they really pushed Capricorn to sign us. And plus, Bruce already knew Phil. And so they did. They signed Bruce, basically. And then we were Bruce's band. And, you know, and so we got a record deal, which is really, it's funny because that's, it was, I mean, of course, it was a really great thing that we got a record deal. But all the groups, in my mind, the group's best playing and the best music and the best gigs we ever did were before the record deal happened because that changed everything. Like once the record deal happened, there was pressure, you know? Right. You know, people yes. are watching now, you know, okay, you better do something. And then, you know, that, that put pressure on us. And some of our flying by the seat of our pants, you know, freewheeling nature got, you know, it got changed a little bit by that, but I'm not saying it was bad. It wasn't bad. It was, yeah, just different. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so you guys did mirrors of embarrassment. And then what happened after that? Because I, I had heard at some point someone had a copy of what would have been the third ARU record without Bruce. And there were some awesome tunes on there. I don't know where I heard it from. Oh, man. Well, well, um, yeah, after, see, right around 94, I think Bruce had just had enough. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't want to stop playing music, but the group had, I mean, it was getting pushed you know, and led around by the nose and like expected to be gone 250 days a year. You know, you, you didn't have a life at home anymore. And I mean, man, I'm I'm not I'm not bullshitting you when I say there was a couple of years there when we had 270, 280 shows. And just that doesn't leave a lot of time for a life. And and Bruce was older than the rest of us by about 15 years. He was older, he was older by than me at least by 15 years and um so he was getting to the point where he just didn't want he didn't want that you know and he kept he told us he was gonna he was gonna bow out i mean we made mirrors that was in 93 and like mirrors was was uh the only studio record we ever made and um you know but then when that came out you know there was this big push by the the record company and also the, the management, you know, to push us to play more shows, longer shows, longer distances. And we couldn't afford a tour bus, you know, so we were just beating ourselves down the road in an airport shuttle converted nightmare, you know. Right. You know, and it was tough. But I mean, yeah, he, he'd had enough, but he didn't want us to stop playing. He wanted us to keep going. And so we did try to keep going for a while. And we did get this guy, Paul Henson. We, we did make a record with him. But it was when ADATS first came out. And uh, I knew right away I didn't like the way the sound was. But remember when ADATS first came out and everybody thought it was, the, it was better than sliced bread? I just didn't think so. And, um, and I, I, I kind of, you know, bitched and moaned about not using you know, the, the old method with the two inch tape, but you know, nobody wanted to use two inch tape anymore at that point. They wanted to use these 
videotape machines. Right, I remember <laughs> it well. Yeah, well, th th that record sounds terrible, if you ask me. That's called In a Perfect World. But then after that one came out, and, uh, some years went by, the group kind of disbanded and wasn't playing anymore. I was playing in Jazz is Dead. O'Teal was doing all kinds of other stuff. Jeff was doing different stuff. And then we got a phone call about some retired football player who had bought a record company. And he... And his people came to us and said, don't you guys have a whole album's worth of unrecorded material? And we were like, well, yeah, we do. But the group couldn't play anymore because it was, it was, we couldn't afford to go play gigs. It was, you know, it fell apart. And then the guy said, well, look, we're going to pay for this record if you'll record it. So we did. And Jeff had left the group. He didn't really care for the musical direction that the, 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 that material was going in. So, yeah, we got Sean O'Rourke on drums, and we went in there and made that record pretty quick. We, we, we made it pretty fast. That one was called The Calling, and uh, that's probably the one you were referring to. Okay, got it. You know, when you talked about the album that came out after Bruce was not there. And that one, I mean, I don't even know if that ever got an official release. I think a friend of mine bought the Masters from the defunct record company that the retired football player uh, owned. I think he bought, my friend bought the masters from him and then released it. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> well, when you were doing like, like from the, in the first uh, live record that you guys did or, or the, the live record, I, I remember just trying to figure out some of those, like in time is free and you're unleashing some delicious, <laughs> delicious half tone or half step, whole step salvos of doom and destruction. And I was just, I was like, what kind of gear is he using? So were you, was that like a strat with humbuckers and, a, and, yeah. and, and your JMP Marshalls at the time, right? Oh, no, that was a red knob twin. Actually. Ah, you know, you remember those? They call yes. them a simple twin. Yep. I mean, I don't have it anymore. I traded that two of those and I traded a bunch, everything I had to get this 73 Marshall. Uh, stack that I ended up with, but but yeah, but that record was the that's the evil twin, the, the red knob twin. With it had Celestian speakers in it. You know. Did you use anything to enhance the dirt, or was it just the amp? No, it was just the amp. That was yeah. Those, I like those amps. I had one of those, and it sounded great. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty damn good lead channel. I mean, it, it had like most twins don't have you know two channels where you can. I mean, they do, but they don't have a gain channel. You know, they're not channel switching amps in general. I mean, I, I prefer the old twins, but and then use an overdrive pedal because then you get more organic tones that way. But yeah, this amp had a dedicated lead channel and you could switch over to a dedicated clean channel. But yeah, it was a pretty damn good amp. I mean, I got to say, people ask me about that all the time. Like, what amp were you playing? I was like, that was a red knob twin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the I second buddy album was too. The Mirrors of Embarrassment was the same amp. Couldn't afford anything else. <laughs> well, you know, old Robin Ford, that was that was his, you know, amp at the time that he Is liked that to use. Right? I did not know that. And my buddy Dave Rogers, who owns... Dave's Guitar Shop up in La Crosse, Wisconsin has that amazing collection of, of guitars and so on and so forth. Is and that the place you just took me? Uh, no, 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 no. That's, this, this place is up in La Crosse. La Crosse is about three hours away from, oh, okay, okay. from Milwaukee. And, uh, but his, his, he has this blues band he plays with up there, and, I, uh, and they did a show with us at this little theater up there. And he, uh, 
he played the Red Knob Twin, and he had two uh, D-series JBLs in that amp, and he ran it on half power. And it sounded freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee you it did, man. I love I love JBLs, man. I, I, yep. I didn't, I really never owned any real ones because I couldn't afford it back when, you know, they were still making them. Right. And, uh, but man, I've, I've reached, I found a guy that recones them down in, in gray, Georgia. His name is Glenn. Um, anyway, Glenn Harrell. And, and, and this guy does recones on these old JBLs. And listen, I, I know the JBL kits to recone these speakers are not available anymore. And I don't know what this guy does, but all I know is, is they sound better than, I mean, they sound regal. You know what I mean? They, they just have a real deep, clear, like authoritative thing. And, um, yeah. And now that's pretty much all I've been using for a while now is uh, his recones of JBLs. They sound glorious. They do. I mean, I, I don't know how they compare to the originals. I had, a, I bought a twin off Craigslist a few years back. I mean, well, 10 years ago. And uh, it had two original cone JBLs in it. But they, they were on their last leg. You know what I mean? They were original cones. There's no way they were going to. There's no way they were going to take the kind of assault that would, you know, if I was to really use them and use them every night, they wouldn't have been able to withstand it. So I, I just made the decision to go ahead. I know I could have sold them and probably made a lot of money on them, but instead I just got them reconed as, well, first I listened to this guy's recones. You know, I went down to his shop and he actually, I called him on the phone. He said, yeah, come on down. Just bring your favorite guitar. I got everything else. And he had rented out, well, he didn't pay because he's, it's a small town, but he had the civic center of the town of Gray at my disposal. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was just going to his little shop. And I did go to his little shop. And he said, okay, uh, come on, let's jump in the van and, and ride over to the civic center. I said, the civic center? What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, that's where all the amps are. And so... We were in this big civic center on the stage. He had a 71 Super Lead, a 71 50 watt, and he had a couple of twin reverbs, you know, from the not not black faces, but they were from the early 70s. And he had three different Marshall cabinets with his speakers in them. Wow. And but you know, he had ones with the doping on on around the edges, like they call the the what do they call that? The uh the D120F. You know? oh, okay. 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 And then he had his version of the pre D120F, which was the ones without the doping, the ones that everyone used to blow but loved the sound of. Oh, it's so he had he had one four twelve with those in it, and one with the ones with doping on, and they sound quite different. So, which ones did you prefer? I prefer the ones without the doping. And so, what he would do is make like I give him four speakers. He would do two of them without and two of them with. The ones with the doping can handle more power. So does he, he makes his own speakers or he just, no, he just redoes the old ones. He just redoes the old ones, but he uses his own, his own, he finds, I don't even know where he gets the voice coils and where he gets the, the cone material. I, you know, because the, the word on the street is, is that if you're trying to re recone these old JBLs, you can't get a good one anymore because JBL doesn't make the recone kit anymore. So it's it, you're having to use aftermarket sources 
but these these kind of people, these recon people, they're they're very resourceful. They they use three or four different sources to find exactly what they want. And this guy knows these JBL speakers inside and out. I hate to go on and on and on about JBL speakers, but I mean, you know, most people, you know, like they they buy a new pedal or they they buy, um, you know, like their pedal board is everything to them. I mean, I don't have a pedal board. I mean, I just use a volume pedal and an overdrive box. And then, so when you're using such small amount of stuff, you can't believe the difference that speakers make. I mean, well, speaking of that, I want to ask you, because someone asked me this the other day, because I was mentioning how, you know, when you listen to, when I heard that buddy of mine, Dave, play his twin with those JBLs in it, there was a, there was a thing that the notes did and just the, the way that it reacted with the overdrive that re- immediately reminded me of, you know, the live on the film, uh, live at the Fillmore tones or yeah. Hendrix's, you know, banded gypsy tones, all of those. Oh yeah. Know? And they're like, well, how would you describe that tone? I was like, I don't even know how to describe it. I just know it, what it is. So what, yeah. how would, how would you describe the tone difference of what those JBLs do? It's hard, right? It's just it like, it's just, hard. it's just the thing. <laughs> I mean, I know my description of it a lot of times is just, it, it's like you're getting special. It's like the red carpet of speed. You know what I mean? It's like you're getting special treatment. It's royal. It's regal. You know what I mean? And it's, it's powerful, but yet it, it's incredibly powerful. But it's, but it's also, it's, it's, uh, it has, it, um, uh, I wish I could think of a better description, Greg, but I mean, it's It's hard, right? I mean, it's it's like the low end doesn't fart out and the high end doesn't get sizzly. It's just like this, this hi-fi thing that still sounds really warm and. Yeah. And incredibly powerful. See, this is, this is the problem that a lot of people would have. See, they would get, if they got these JBL speakers, they would get that, plug their amp into it and put their amp on two and go, these speakers sound like shit. Well, but see, but, I mean, the way they sound best is when you take... A power amp section and dime it. Well, yeah, you got, yeah. And and then you control it from the guitar. You know, man, you and me, we, we grew up in an era where where instead of having a whole bunch of buttons to push, you know, you, you use the dial on your guitar, you crank the amp, and then when you want a super clean sound, you back off the volume... And these older amps, they 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 lose some volume when you back it off, but you still have a lot of volume there, but it just cleans it up. And so then when you want to play a lead, you turn the volume back up and it doesn't get that much louder. It just it just gets you bring the power tubes into the equation. And the like Fender amps and those JBL speakers are absolutely made for each other. They're just made for each other, man. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, I got I got this one cabinet that's got two JBLs and two Altex from the same era. And they've all been reconed by this dude, you know, Greg, uh, I'm sorry, Glenn Harrell down in Gray, Georgia. And I, man, you know, I stumbled on his ad. I was looking to buy some JBL speakers and I stumble on this ad for a recone service. Then I see that it's in Gray, Georgia, which is right here near me. You know what I mean? I'm in Atlanta. It's probably an hour and a half south of me. And so I thought, well, what have I got to lose by looking into it? And when I did, I went down there. The dude had, you remember I told you, he had the Civic Center. Right. I walked crazy. in there with a Strat. I walked in there with a Strat, like 
you know, no humbuckers, just single coils. And I, I plugged into his twin through his JBL 412. And I, I immediately I was like, okay, all right, what do I have to do? All right. <laughs> and I had those speakers in my car just in case I liked what I heard from his speakers. And I left his speaker, my speakers with him. And it ended up being my the best 412 I've ever played through. It's a Mojo 412 that's kind of like a basket weave uh, Marshall. But I had to make it open back. And see, that's the other thing. They always want to put them in a closed back cabinet. You got to put them in an open back cabinet for them to really broaden out and fill the room with that sound you know uh, and yeah they don't fart out in the low end and, and and there's a little bit of a learning curve of playing with with speakers that are that truthful that that would be a good word to describe oh there you go yeah yeah they're truthful man you can't hide you can't i mean if you play like crap those speakers are gonna make it even more right obvious you, you, you can't know? hide in uh, some kind of woolly no. quagmire <laughs> no, the, the, I mean, Celestian speakers can actually help you play, you know, like, and that's good. I love them too, you know, but man, EVs and uh, I got, I went down that rabbit hole when I discovered the EVs and then I, I was like, whoa, I like these a lot. You know, they're truthful. And so, and then after hearing them and, and using them for some number of years, I finally found the JBLs and found that guy down there and I haven't looked back. And I still love my tone tubbies. I mean, they're still fantastic. I still use them too. But I mean, when it comes to uh, that that really truthful regal sound, I mean, man, I I can't. I mean, and people always go, "Oh, they don't they don't sound that good with overdrive." You, you know, you've heard. You know, they have those chrome dust covers. Oh, you know, Garcia used them, and so did Dicky Betts, and so did Hendrix. For, like, you hear the intro to "Hey Joe" on that record. You know that's JBLs. That's the sound of JBLs. And, um, you know, and then there's, you know, um, I'm sure there's other things. Did Band of Gypsies, you said? Is that what yeah. you're using yeah. then? Yeah. Using, I mean, they're, they're just, uh, they just have a really unique, wonderful thing to them. I haven't looked back since then. It just seems like the Fender amps that I like, you know, Twins from the mid-60s, Basements from the, you know, from, from the, uh, you know, earlier 60s. Uh, and and uh, super reverbs from the mid '60s. It just seems like they're just made for those. Like, so so your rig now is you you like supers that you've turned into heads with with a 412 bottom, correct? I do that sometimes. Yeah, I do have a 412 bottom that has four JBLs in it, and they're wired. You know, they're eight ohm speakers that are wired to two ohms, and then you put the super through that. But also, the super sounds really good through through tens. You know what it was designed for. But, it, but man, I mean, you know, if you hear it through the 12s, you're like, oh, <laughs> it's right, pretty, right. pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, the difference it makes, people don't have any idea, I don't think, because they're, I mean, if you're not cranking the amp on eight, it, it, you know, the JBLs might not be the best thing for you, you know, but. Let me, let me ask you just a kind of geeky tech question so if you're if you have to do like a throw and go sit in with somebody someone says hey jimmy want you to come down and <laughs> sit in and we'll have a couple of backline amps for you now i know you that's not a situation you'd normally like to find yourself in you're going to want to have your own rig but let's just say it's it's happening right right would you be more apt to bring some kind of an overdrive pedal along because you have no idea how that amp's going to sound turned up all the way or are you just going to risk it and turn the amp up no, no. I mean, I would use, I use the overdrive box even when I turn the amp up all the way. 
but I don't, but I don't use it all the time. You know, like there's a, there's a whole rent. Like if you take a, you know, you know, like a 65 twin reverb, a real one, not a reissue. And then you crank that sucker on eight and you put the, put the treble on eight people go, are you crazy? Well, you know, if you disconnect the tremolo circuit from the amp and you pull the V one tube out that powers channel one, not the vibrato channel, the vibrato channel tube stays. We'll see those two small mods along with putting the amp on a, they make a, may make a twin sound like a giant super reverb. Uh huh. But, but if you, but if you still have an overdrive box and then you're using the volume control on the guitar to, to vary, you know, how much, how hard you're hitting it. Like when you have that overdrive box on and then, or if you use a volume pedal, like I do, if you back off on the vine pedal, you still have all these usable sounds within the range of the vine pedal being way back, even though the overdrive is on. Sure. It's a different sound than it would be if you didn't have it on, you know? And then there's all these sounds within that range of that vine pedal with that overdrive on. And if you turn it off, there's all these sounds within the range. Of, so just between those two items being on or off and having a vine pedal or using the knob on your guitar, and having really good speakers and, uh, and good tubes, good glass, you know. I mean, that that to me is way more important than any pedal. But, yeah, to answer your question, I, w- I would take an overdrive pedal with me. And, and, and I know that the people will want to know, what is your, your current overdrive du jour? Man, it's been the same for so many years. It's a Hughes and Kettner tube factor. I mean, I've been through, like, me and my friends like that sit around and you know talk about tone and and you know like the guys that I work with uh, like Joel Byron, Rush Anderson, these are guys like you know I really value their opinions and uh, they'll always call me up and go, okay, I got it, I got the new Overdrive pedal, I got the one that's going to beat the Hughes and Kettner, I got the one that's going to put the Hughes and Kettner on the shelf. That's what they. <laughs> right? And I'm like, well, I'll believe it when I hear it, right? So we'll have, we'll go, we'll go up to, there's a, there's a rehearsal studio in town called Crossover. My buddy Rush used to work there and we would, he would, when, when business was slow, when we had the permission of the owners and everything, Rush would be having to work there all night long. He would be there till four in the morning, even if nobody was there. And if nobody was there, he would call me up and I would come down there and I would bring I don't know, a shit ton of equipment in the back of my truck. And we would go through everything. And we would A B, you know, his new flavor of the of, of the of the month overdrive against the Hughes and Kettner. And without fail, the Hughes and Kettner beat it every time. Every and I mean, you know, but but this is only for me I'm talking about. It's not for sure. everybody. I got you. Yep. But see and those are the people that know that pedal. The, the pedal has some quirks that are, are not good. You know, like it has two channels. It has the green channel, which if you don't have an amp cranked up and you just cut on that clean channel, it doesn't seem like it's that much gain. But if you have a twin reverb on eight and then you, you know, and, and you know, and then you, you cut on the green channel, then all of a sudden, you got some. It, it's a lot of gain because it's not. It's not just. Uh, and we're not. I'm not, I'm not even turning the gains. Just barely up past halfway. But I never used the red channel. The red channel is like super, super distorted. Oh, interesting. And I, I, I never used that. Um, 
I use the green channel, but it doesn't work unless you, I mean, it works great with super reverbs when you put them on eight or 10. It works great with pro reverbs when you put them on eight or 10, twin reverbs when you put them on eight or 10. The idea is that you're just using this thing to try to bring out more of what the amp already has. And that's 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 what that pedal for me has done more than any other pedal. Now, yeah, I mean, I do have some other overdrives, and they're all good, but this one is just the one that's been the one I could count on for years to to make it sound like the amp already sounds, only more of it. You know what Got I mean? It. Got it. And uh, I love the sound of your uh, Gristle King, man. Oh, I mean, thank you. Uh, that thing sounds amazing. And uh, and Joel, you know my my guitar tech. I mean, he's uh, our drum tech just made you. That's, you just, a, that's, wow. a, that's a great pedal. I love that's it. That's a great pedal. The Octonaut. His name's Eric Bice. He's our drum tech, and he's a, also a really great drummer in his own right. But he he during the pandemic decided, well, shit, I've, I've got all this time. I might as well. I'm kind of curious what it takes to build a guitar pedal, and he's such an astute person that he didn't just make a guitar pedal. He he ended up making a guitar pedal that all these people really want now. And yeah, that's uh, cool. It's no doubt. It's and it's well done. I mean, just the whole, the whole look of it. Yeah. Just everything about it. The, uh, the Octronaut. The Octronaut. Octronaut. I Hyperdrive. Love yeah. I've been using it a lot lately. I've been using that, uh, and the Hughes and Kettner and, you know, but you know, I, 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 I sometimes think I'm nuts, you know, and other people will look at me with, with that look on their face, like, really, really? You know, like when Eric Johnson says he can hear the difference between, a, 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 you know, a, the different types. Cor- ends of, of the cord uh, and so on, yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, I never said that that was crap. I totally believe that. I, I believe that anything he, he says he hears, I believe him. Sure. <laughs> but one of the things I hear that 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 bothers me is when you put two o- overdrive pedals in line with each other. You know what I mean? Like when they're in line with each other, even if you don't put them on at the same time. Like I can like if I put two overdrive pedals in line with each other, it might it might matter depending on what overdrive pedal we're talking about. But if I put the Octonaut and the Hughes and Kettner in line with each other, even when I have them turned off, I can hear that my straight in sound isn't isn't it's, like isn't the same. I got it's you. Not, yeah. It's not the same. And this is this is what drove me away from trying to do the A B, the A B system. Like, you know, like a lot of guys will have Marshalls for lead and then fenders for clean. And I I did that for a lot of years. I did that for a lot of years using the Ernie Ball um pan pedal. And yeah, I had it set up where when I pushed the pedal down, it went to the Marshall. And when I pulled it up, it was on the fender. And I was using that rig all through the Jazz's Dead period and stuff. But, you know, man, if you take a Fender Twin and you plug straight into it and you hear that glorious thing that Fender Twins do, but then you put it into an AB system and then suddenly it doesn't sound the same. It's I like it, It's like if you have... And I've tried everything. I've tried everything I can think of other than a Bradshaw system. But I've tried it with uh, the Layla, or is it Leela, however you pronounce that. Yeah, yeah. You know, they make a really good AB box. I got one of them and tried it. I still hear the same problem. See, when when you have a, an AB box like that. Oh, uh, Leahy. Is that Le- the one? Le- yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. 
the German guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good stuff. Really good stuff. But when you, but when you do that, when you, when you're going with a B and one amp is dirty and one amp is cleaner, there's a, a isolation transformer on one leg of, of the AB like a maybe has an isolation transformer. B does not. This is supposed to keep ground loops from happening, you know, cause you know, you don't want to deal with a ground loop. It's an awful nightmare and, and a B and amps. If you're, if you have a lot of gain in one of the amps, it, it, it has a tendency to hum. Right. And then if ground loops come, it, the hum is so loud, you can't get away from it. And it's a nightmare. So lay L- 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 Layla or late lay he, um, or Leela, or however you pronounce yeah, it. I think it's L-E-H-L-E, right? That's Le- it. Yeah. yeah. It's a great company. Man, they make really good stuff. But, you know, they 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 have an isolation transformer on one leg, I think. And what that does is it, 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 it keeps ground loops from being a problem. Okay, that's all good. But whatever leg doesn't have the isolation transformer, that's the amp that sounds like it's not getting all the fidelity it should get. And, and because of that, what we tend to do, or what I tend to do is when I was doing that, I would put the isolation transformer leg on the dirty amp. Cause I want it to be, you know, pristine. But then when I switch to the clean, it almost sounds like there's a blanket over it or something. And, uh, it just, and then I talked to other people about it. They're like, no, I never had that problem, but I can hear it. And it's really, you know, yeah. And and then I, I I put these ideas to my people who I really entrust their their opinion, and after I point it out to them, they hear it too, you know. And so I'm not crazy. I just you know. So this is what led me to the current rig I've been using for years, which is it's just basically a, a Fender type amp or a Marshall type amp, and you crank it, and then that's it. And that that you got an overdrive box and that, and then I I usually get a line out box from someone like uh, John Sir oh, yeah. or, or some of these guys that I work with, you know, they, they reverse engineered that pedal and, and turned it in, you know, and used better components. And they, they, they made me my own line line out box, <clears throat> but you know, but then that allows you to be able to have like a line out to go into a digital reverb. And right. Then you can bring the reverbs returns to a separate power amp through a separate set of speakers. And that allows, you know, that allows you to have that wet dry rig, you know, which I haven't, I haven't used it any other way for a long time. You know, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it comes with its own set of, of caveats though. I mean, because you have to trust the sound guy, you know, right. which is always a dicey prospect. It can be. <laughs> I mean, I'm very, you're right. I mean, I can, I'm pretty lucky because we have the same sound guy, you know, with All our right. Band. But when I go out, you know, and play smaller stuff, yeah. I mean, like, I remember we did Austin City Limits one time with Panic. And they sent me something to listen to after the mixing session. And I'm like, what the hell, man? You guys didn't even use the second part of my rig. Uh, They only had the dry part on there. And when I called back, luckily, JB was still in the control room. And I said, man... Can you ask them to turn on the second half of my rig? And when they did, of course, it got a lot better, you know. Uh, <laughs> but they didn't know. They didn't even freaking notice it. That I mean, and it was the most butt ugly, you know, dry and in your face, ugly guitar sound. Some people really like that sound. And for some things I do, you know, but I'm a reverb junkie. Yes, I mean, a little bit of that. 
Yeah, reverb. I, I use too much reverb, but I mean, but the guy out front can use as much as he wants. You know, if you have it going through a separate source like that, you know, that's just the way I like to do it. I like, I like, I think it makes it a lot more three D. It makes it, it brings to it that Van Halen one kind of thing. Right, you know? right, right, right. You know, like it, 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 that kind of separation between the reverb and the um, dry. You know. Well, listen, my friend. Sorry, I've, I've, I'm running up against the thing I got to do here, and I've, I got, we could talk for like another hour, no problem. And <laughs> hey, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, we'll, 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 have to, we'll, we'll have to do a, uh, uh, a a volume two. Anytime you say. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure hanging with you as usual. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks for thanks for including me, Greg. Oh, absolutely. And one of these days, we'll have to have to get a, a, a some kind of a gig together where we'll cause trouble. That would be... We've threatened to do it many times. I'm always into the prospect of doing that. And next time, I gotta ask you some questions. Well, you're too kind. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I got laundry list questions. Alright, my friend. Well, you have a good one, and uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. Thanks a lot, Greg. Alright, thank you. Take, likewise. Take it easy. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Koch here. Thanks so much for tuning in.